I'm Carrie Miller. Man, I'm excited about this new Talking Volume season, and tickets go on sale Monday. Here's who we've got. Karn Armstrong opens the season with a new book about spirituality and nature. Celeste Eng is the author of Little Fires Everywhere. Danny Shapiro, the author of the blockbuster memoir Inheritance, and Ross Gay on Joy. You can buy your tickets at nprnews.org Talking Volumes. And as you know, Talking Volumes is a partnership with the Star Tribune. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show. And it's good to have you listening. There are often milestones in a child's life when the veil of innocence drops away and a glimpse of the adult in the making becomes visible. For Frederick Joseph, those milestones were accompanied by violence, the dangerous red rage in a childhood fight, the wisdom of a grieving mother at a friend's funeral, the realization that hurting people with his fists gave him the power he both feared and wanted. Mr. Joseph writes in his new book, Occasionally you find people like myself— people who have built themselves a home atop the mountain of nothingness created by violence. Frederick Joseph is an educator, philanthropist, and activist. His previous book for young readers is titled The Black Friend, and his new book about masculinity is titled Patriarchy Blues, Reflections on Manhood. He joins us from the New York area. Frederick, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I have to say, I found that exchange that you had at your friend's funeral, this exchange with his mother, to be quite remarkable. And before we talk about what was said, I was hoping you'd talk a bit about the circumstances of your friend's death and then how you came to be at his funeral. Yeah, so the friend um, in that specific part of the book who passed, uh, that was all due to essentially gang violence, right? Um, That was due to toxic, masculine, false sense of claiming neighborhoods, claiming women, claiming people um, that didn't belong to anybody, quite frankly. And when you say claiming, do you mean that in an ownership kind of way? Do you mean that in a power kind of way? How would you describe it? I think it's both, right? Um, it's it's funny because the, the term that's used actually when you're in um, gangs and things of that nature is actually the word claiming. But I, but claiming is a sense of ownership. It's a, clench, it's a sense of entitlement, a sense of power. Hmm. So your friend had been shot and killed in a gang confrontation or, or how, how had he died and how old was he? So at the time we were in high school um, and he had actually passed. He was involved in, you know, pretty nefarious activities, um, but he actually passed because he and another guy were essentially jousting long term over a woman actually behind the scenes. And when you say jousting with with what they were feuding about a woman? Yeah, yeah, it was a. It was a constant verbal joust, a physical joust, uh, a feud, if you would. Um, and the reason I use the word jousting is because I think of, you know, actual jousting, like two people on horses just violently kind of attacking one another, right? That's the, whenever I think back to that, that's what's in my head, just the nonsensical, you know, two um, 
you know, thinly armored clad men just like <laughs> attacking one another violently. So you encounter his mother who has lost her son, what, in his teenage years to violence. And she hugs you and she says, a bunch of angry boys who don't know how to cry are the reason my son is dead. Cry for my son. You both deserve it. Will you describe a little bit about that encounter? And then I want to talk about what she actually said to you. But what do you remember about encountering her? You know, I I remember to a certain extent falling apart, right? I, I think that oftentimes when we talk about emotions, when we talk about vulnerability, we, we tend to equate those things negatively um, with femininity, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of us didn't grow up being taught, told, or, or seeing how to access our emotions, right? We, we were taught how to access, well, if there wasn't emotion, I suppose it was just anger, right? Um, you know, and there wasn't really uh, much else in terms of emotions that we were taught to access. So, you know, being given the the latitude, being given the green light, if you would, to do something else, right? There is another way. Um, was one of the most powerful experiences or things that had ever been said to me. You know, I thought it was interesting. She, I don't know how well you knew her before you saw her at the funeral, but she really sees you, I, I think, in the deepest sense of the word. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of knowing her, you know, I, I think I grew up in an era where people, young people such as myself, we knew people's parents. Um, but I don't think that she wasn't someone who was con- a constant in my life, which actually made it more powerful for me because she was someone that was able to penetrate me in a way that had felt like I lived with her myself, right? As if I was her son. She says to you, um, a bunch of angry boys who don't know how to cry are the reason my son is dead. What does that mean? You know, I, I think, again, it goes to this false sense of what it is to be a man. I think especially um, in our country, uh, you know, I think back to, uh, what was it, The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton. Um, I remember reading that as a, as a child. And if you remember, um, same thing with West Side Story, if you would. Um, if you remember, it was just all these young men who were just so angry, right? right? Just like all these young men who knew how to do nothing but be angry. And what is an anger is anger is is the precipice of violence, right? You know, um, and and it really was why her son was dead. Had people known how to talk, had people known how to listen, how people you know known how to communicate hurt, communicate even rage at times right? or frustration, we wouldn't have been. He wouldn't have been. She wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have been. We all wouldn't have been in the circumstance that we were in, and and that we are historically, I think, in this country, quite frankly, with men. You know, I, I have to say this. It's interesting that you'd bring up S.E. Hinton because I they shot the movie in Tulsa, and I was there about a month ago, and we saw the neighborhood where the movie was shot, and we were reminded that she wrote that novel as a very young woman. I think she was, what, in high school or just out of high school. Her understanding of what you've just described of anger and 
th- this perception of masculinity was far more sophisticated than her years. H- how is it? Did you read the book in high school or you're reading it now? No, I read the book in, I, th- I think, middle school, actually. Oh, okay. um, yeah, I read the book as a very, very young man or a boy, if you would. Um, and I just I just recall that. I, and that's why I also mentioned, you know, West Side Stories. I, I think right. that, you know, those are two really good examples. And I think because in my opinion, you know, it's not about and I, and I think what we've seen a lot of times is this 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 false sense of who is enraged and this false sense of who is violent. And I think, quite frankly, Everyone is, right? I think everyone has been failed by a country who's that's our history is so rooted in violence and all we've kind of taught our men, you know, racial lines aside is anger and violence. One of the things that your friend's mother, I I think, is acknowledging is something that you write about these toxic constraints, as you call them in the way we think about gender and what we tell boys it means to be a man. We're going to talk about your own your own upbringing and your mother in a moment and how she understood that. But in general, how would you describe what these toxic constraints are, even today, and what, what the kind of messaging is for young men? You know, when I think of the toxic constraints, I... You know, you can look around at, you know, even the protests that are going on right now. You know, I I think the very notion that any man thinks that they have a right in any capacity to state what a woman should be doing with their body is a direct example, right? Like we have this false sense of ownership um, that comes along with these toxic constraints and a lack of ownership and accountability for ourselves, right? We, you know, it's interesting. We teach our boys, and I, and, I'm, and I use a broad swath as far as we, but for the most part, we collectively teach our boys that winning, surviving, things of that nature always demands beating someone, mm. right? Like mm. it demands beating someone, whether that means beating them um, in competition, beating them mentally, beating them emotionally, beating them physically, right? What else do we teach our boys though? Do we teach our boys how to be tender? Do we teach our boys how to be tender with the people around them, how to be tender with themselves? I don't think so broadly, right? Like, and again, you can see that in the reactions, in the responses, in the conversation, the national uh, zeitgeist of what's going on right now. How many men do you, let's say how many men in your circle do you think are comfortable with the idea that tenderness and the communication of that to to a child is not just the realm of the mother or a woman in this child's life? that they really hold responsibility for that as well. How comfortable do you think your your friends are in your circle are with the idea of that? I would say everyone in my circle at this point. Um, you know, one of the great things, uh, the few great things, it's a horrible thing, but the, the pandemic, I think, allowed people to curate who's around them a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know, finishing Patriarchy Blues during the height of the pandemic and and also getting engaged right before the pandemic and thinking about family planning and things of that nature made me want to 
not just continue my own growth, but understand that when we claim to be certain people, like when we claim to be um, wanting to cause less harm in our society, however that is, whether it's patriarchy, white supremacy, classism, whatever it might be, um, we have to also take stock of who's around us. And when I did that, you know, I was able to create facilitate a healthier group of friends. And there was already a a good amount of healthy people there, but, Mm -hmm. you know, basically focus on them. So at this point, you know, even all my guys, whenever we finish talking on the phone, we always tell each other we love each other, right? Like we understand the power of men telling other men that they love them and the power of, you know, passing that on to a generation that's coming up behind us. How do you think sports culture contributes to what you've been talking about, this lack of accountability, these toxic constraints that you've been describing? Yeah, it's interesting. I think every sport has their own specific way that they contribute. But I look at something like the NFL, for example, right? Where, you know, it's a violent sport, but outside of the the violence of it all, we praise how hard you can hit somebody. So not, not just a matter of like, can you tackle someone to stop the play? It's a matter of how hard did you hit them? Did you almost injure them? And we're doing it in front of 50,000 people watching in a stadium, millions of people watching on TV. What does that do to a culture, right? Like when you look at things like UFC, um, you know, I don't watch UFC myself. I actually also don't watch the NFL. But when I look at UFC, like in the commercials, I'm always you know, for lack of a better term, flabbergasted <laughs> by the fact that they're like fighting on mats that have blood on the mm, mats, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're like blood stained mats. You have people cheering for people hitting each other hard enough to like quite literally take their jaw off in the middle of a match. And I wonder how that erodes a people, right? How, how does that erode a culture? Because, you know, the normalization, and this is not new, obviously, we, you know, we had um, things like this during Coliseum games. Yeah, and, right. Cetera, the gladiator so, culture. Right, exa- right. Exactly. The gladiator culture. Um, but what did that do to a society? Ultimately, that same society, you know, went around the world and enslaved people. So <laughs> what is our society that's kind of doing similar things going around the world and doing, doing in our immediate um, worlds, you know, our households, our conversations, how do the, like, like, you can't normalize seeing somebody, you know, beat to a bloody pulp and then think that you're going to be the healthiest version of yourself <laughs> as a mother, father, brother, husband, son, you know? How, how do you perceive, since we're talking about sports and you've brought up the NFL, how do you perceive the way the NFL responded to the research that came out about concussion and the evolution of how that conversation has gone. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I think the NFL in many ways reminds me of a modern manifestation of enslavement culture in this country in that, you know, you have, for the most part, black bodies, black and brown bodies that are disposable right so and so for me the the lack of response to learning about concussions and cte and things of that nature comes directly from the disposability of black and brown bodies right and i and i think that you know outside of that even the response to um players being accused or even like finding that they actually committed you know domestic violence mm-hmm. and abuse right mm-hmm. like the lack of repercussions for that um is is completely disproportionate 
um, you know, to say, I don't, I don't know, um, someone, like, let's say Michael Vick dogfighting, which is a horrible atrocity, right? An absolutely horrible atrocity, but you get more time for, you know, fighting dogs than for fighting, you know, fighting women in your life. And I'm, <laughs> and you have to ask, so are, is the NFL basically saying dogs are more important than women? And, is, you know, the second, like, and that's how the culture of this country works. A lot of times, you know, women are treated as second class citizens in that same way. You know what, what's, as, as you were describing that, I was thinking, there is this sense of, I, I, a kind of disposability, right? If you won't do it at the level, if you won't be as violent and tough on the field as we need, we'll go find five other people who are eager to put their bodies into that situation and do what's required. You know, it seems to me that while there were individual players that took a stand about the level of violence and the potential for injury, as a whole, you didn't I mean, there were. I know there were some rules changes, but as a whole, you didn't seem to see the players standing up to say, this is too risky, we're not disposable, we are going to see that the game changes. What, what, do you, what did you see in that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly it, um, which is why, you know, I said it's, it, it's akin to, you know, um, or, or rather a manifestation, in my opinion, of like a enslavement um, culture. Because mm-hmm. like it's, it's, it's a next step mentality for people who are oftentimes coming from desperate situations, to put it quite frankly, right? Like you have people, um, you, you know, who are coming from low income communities, oftentimes people who are coming from, um, you know, impoverished families, um, oftentimes, and, you know, we, we can't necessarily afford, we collectively, you know, I'm not in the NFL, but just thinking of people from certain backgrounds, mm-hmm. we can't necessarily afford to take stances and also jeopardize the survival of our families, right? So, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing because I, I do think that ownership knows it in the NFL. I mean, to be quite frank with you, I think that the gatekeepers in almost every industry know these things right like i don't I, the nfl is a, it has its horrible atrocities and understanding how to gatekeep and force people to do things because of their backgrounds i think publishing is much of the same way i think television is much of the same way hmm. music is music industry is much of the same way you're listening to a conversation with frederick joseph his new book is called patriarchy blues reflections on manhood i'm carrie miller and this is big books and Bold Ideas, my Friday book show. Uh, your mother saw you fight once. In fact, she told you to go get something back that had been taken from you, I guess, by the neighborhood bullies. And she thought that you, in doing that, that you had done what you had to do. And you write about that. She did what she thought a father or an uncle would have done. She did what the patriarchy has conditioned us to do. How old were you when when this happened? I think it was about seven years old at the time. Oh, okay, younger seven than or I eight. Thought. Yeah, and yeah. some cards. What Pokemon cards or something had been yeah. taken yep. from you? Yep. Yeah, yeah. What, what were the cards, what yeah. were the circumstances? So what happened was, so I, I grew up in a neighborhood where you know people 
people clawed and struggled for everything that they had, right? Like nothing was given easy, especially um, things that were found to be luxuries, such as trading cards. Um, and I, and you know, every kid in school had Pokemon cards. I went to a performing arts elementary school with kids from all around um, the city who oftentimes are from like backgrounds that are, had far more money um, than we did. Mm-hmm. And so I was the one kid just about in my school who didn't have any Pokemon cards, right? For <laughs> weeks and weeks and weeks. And, you know, you can only imagine how that makes a kid feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also one of, the, one of the only black kids in school. So my mother, I, I believe at the time she was, um, I, I think she was cleaning houses. She, she had more than one job, but I think at the time primarily she was cleaning people's houses in the wealthy part of the city. And she worked overtime um, for weeks just to buy me a few cards. And um, what happened was I actually ended up getting like a few rare cards in my pack, you know, just the way that works out. Um, So I was super excited and showing my cards around the neighborhood and things, things of that nature. And a few other kids, because of the nature of where we lived, also didn't have cards, right? Um, But instead of, you know, I guess you know, taking that loss and, and, and you know, just understanding they didn't have cards, they decided to take my cards. Um, so, you know, I went back and I told my mother that these kids took my cards and, and, you know, what ended up happening was there, there, there was a moment where she had to teach me a lesson, right? Mm-hmm. It was like, how do you, in a world as a young black kid, how do you defend yourself? What does defending yourself look like? And I think, and, and, and I and I still agree with her lesson, right? So I, I want to point that out. I agree with the lesson for the time. You do? Right? Huh. Um, I, I, I do. Well, I agree with the lesson. Yeah, l- l- let's talk about what happened, and then I really want to come back to that. <laughs> so you tell your mother this, and she says... She basically says, um, you have to go get the cards or you can't come back in the house. I don't know what that means. So she just closes the door and, you know, essentially it's up to me to go figure out how to get these cards from these kids. So I, I go outside and I ask them for like literally hours, like, hey, um, can I have the cards? Hey, can I have the cards? And they're, you know, just like, no, no, no. And one of them eventually actually like slaps me or hits me or something along those lines. And I go back to the house. Like we live in an apartment building. I go back to our apartment um, because it's getting dark now. And I'm like, crying like please let me in i can't get the cards so on and so forth and my mother essentially says nothing like you you have to go get these cards right <laughs> like or else you're not coming back and that moment as the as the street lights are coming on and it's getting dark and i'm a kid so i'm afraid of the dark so on and so forth you know there was a, a decision to make either i get my cards or you know from my perspective as a seven or eight year old whatever i was i'm not thinking that i'm learning a lesson i'm thinking this is essentially life or death right i'm, not, I'm gonna yeah. have to be outside whatever um so i go back outside and i ask for the cards again and the kids refuse to give it to me so i pick up i pick up an object and i just like hit one of the kids right i hit one of the kids and then i like attack another kid and like take my cards back and they had also taken other kids' cards too. So I took those kids' cards as well. And I eventually later on gave those kids their cards back, right? Mm-hmm. Like the kids who they stole cards from. I go back to the house. Um, my mother lets me in because I have the cards. And years later, I find out that she was watching through the window at the at the entire time. So that was basically my first foray into the world, if you would, of violence, right? Where I'm like, oh, violence as I saw it, a necessity to get respected or get the things I need or to move something along. 
But I'll let you respond before I tell you why I agree with them. <laughs> okay, good. I'm, I'm eager to talk about that. I mean, if I recall, when you describe this incident in the book, you, I mean, you injured this kid. I mean, it, it, this yes. was not just a, I'm threatening you with this, give it back. You really hurt him. Yes, yes. I, I Yeah, he was hurt pretty badly as far as I remember. And I can't remember if I picked up, I think I picked up a, a really big stick. Yeah, I, I think I that's what you correctly. describe. Yeah. yeah, I think it was a really big stick. And and I and I wailed on this kid and he was hurt badly. I mean, he was hurt relatively badly, not like go to the hospital badly, but he was hurt badly. And, you know, it was something that I had to reflect on as I got older because it normalized how – it normalized, again, like the use of violence. But the reason I say I agree with the lesson, I don't agree with the actions, right? And I think those are two different things, mm-hmm. right? I don't agree with hurting the kid. I don't agree with the, the what was – what it took place necessarily in totality, but I think that the importance of teaching black kids how to survive in a violent world is extremely important, right? So I think that I would have probably taught the lesson in a different way, but the lesson needed to be taught in some capacity. So let, let's remind listeners again that your mother, as you picked up the stick and you went after this kid and you prevailed – your mother was standing in the window and she saw this. She probably saw that kid bleeding. She knew, I mean, she wasn't sure how this was going to come out, but she saw you delivering us, you know, some street justice, right, to this kid. Did your mother really at this point when she said, well, I'm locking the door. You can't come in until you go get the stuff that I worked long hours to to get for you. I mean, did your mother believe that there was going to be any other way for you to get those cards back other than doing what you ultimately ended up doing. And she approved of that. Is that right? Well, I think that the thing is, one, I don't know that she knew of another way. Two, I don't know that she necessarily approved, right? So the lesson that she was teaching doesn't necessarily, you know, she's not a fortune teller. She can't say, oh, he's going to go pick up a stick and hit a kid with a stick, right? Like she's she's like, you know, essentially you have to figure out a way, right? So you okay. have to use something in your toolbox, whatever it is that you have to make this happen. Maybe she assumed I was going to snatch the cars and run. Maybe she thought I was going to kick one of the kids. Who knows what she thought? Um, but I can't I can't necessarily put that on her that she assumed that I was going to do the things I I did ultimately because I, I think that that would be like blaming to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I, I think that if there is any blame to be doled out, I would kind of blame the circumstance, right? I would blame the circumstance that people are in that led to all of this, right? The um, the feeling of having to steal, the feeling of having to be violent, the feeling of having to um, raise a young boy by yourself, the feel, all these different things that are taking place um, that you have to unpack in totality. And I think that throughout the book, that's what I'm doing. It's like unpacking the totality of all these different circumstances. Mm. How did you find out that she saw what happened? Because you, again, you've said you didn't know that at the time. Yeah, I actually didn't know until years later. Um, I, I brought this story up in a conversation with someone in front of my mother and as kind of, not as a reflection on my first kind of like instance of violence or instance of violence, um, but more so as a reflection on, on my first time 
the first time I ever felt like, oh, someone respects me, right? In a in a in a world where I'm an eight year old or seven year old, whatever I was, black kid going to a predominantly white elementary school where everyone's making fun of me. I'm the poor kid. I'm this and third. This is the first time I've ever felt respected as a human, right? So I was reflecting on what that actually meant. And my mother chimed in when I was telling the story. She's like, you know, I was watching you to make sure you were safe from the window, right? She's like, I was watching to make sure you were safe and to see how you would, how you would operate. Because the reality also is we were, you know, if I'm not mistaken, that was the same year um, that Amadou Diallo was assaulted by the police here in New York, right? Mm -hmm. And And I think it was also the same year that my mother taught me about Emmett Till, you know, so, so I think that, you know, black mothers in particular have the weight of the world on their shoulders, right? Mm-hmm. They have their own existence, but then they have the existence of being a mother to this, to this being that has this, 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 this existence, quite frankly, where, you know, you can end up like Trayvon Martin, you can end up like Tamir Rice, you can end up like Mike Brown. So how do you how do you give that kid enough where you feel comfortable even letting them exist in the world without you? Right. So you, you write about these other confrontations and probably many more that you haven't written about that flow from this sense that I've got the power, I've got the capability, and this is the way that you solve problems. And then you write what I quoted in the introduction, which is occasionally you find people like myself, people who have built themselves a home atop the mountain of nothingness created by violence. That is bleak. That's really despairing. When did you – I guess when did you come to understand that the way you'd learned and the way you thought was necessary – led to what you describe as a mountain of nothingness. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, I, I think I started discovering it. Um, and I write about this, you know, when I started like crying more after these instances, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like why, like every, you know, for those who haven't read the book, obviously, you know, I was crying um, after getting into physical altercations and things of that nature. And, and, and wondering why, right? And it wasn't until I was in my mid-20s, roughly, that I, I started taking stock of, like, what my feelings actually were. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, in my going into my mid-30s now, you know, that, that line that you quoted, I think that that's a, a metaphor not just for myself, but for our entire country, mm-hmm. quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Do you think that you were crying – you know, out of a kind of despair about your role and what had happened? Do you think you were crying because you really saw no way out of, you know, this kind of circular violence? I mean, as you look back, what, what was that? You know, I'm still unpacking that in therapy. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'll be unpacking that for the rest of my life because I think that it's extremely nuanced. I think that I was crying um, over the necessity for violence or what I at least felt was a necessity. I was crying 
um, for the circumstances that led to the violence. Like, you know, one of those stories that I tell, you know, is me basically having like a, a, a choke lock on another young man at a concert festival but he spat on a black woman, right? right like right. he spat in a black woman's face, this young white man. And I'm crying for all of it, right? I'm crying for myself. I'm crying for this young black woman. I'm crying for, I'm crying for all the people who don't have someone to defend him. I'm crying for the fact that that might, in my opinion, is that my only way? Is that all I have to defend myself or this black woman against a white man, right? Like, like, like I'm crying about it all. But at some point, you decide that even though this is within your capability to use your fists and use violence, that ultimately it leads to nothing but despair. And what is the, what is the moment or what is the realization, would you say, that brings you to that point? I think the moment and realization that brought me to that point was when – Probably my younger brother was born. So I have a younger brother. He's actually 10 years old now. And it was the first time in my life that I started reflecting, not just on who I had been, but like how I was seen, mm-hmm. right? So I think that was the first instance. And around that same time is when I also found out that I had multiple sclerosis, you know, and, and finding out that you have, um, you know, a disease that you don't, you don't know how it's going to impact you. you, don't know how it's going to manifest in your body and what it's going to change about you, starts making you think about what your legacy is, right? So now I'm thinking about my legacy from the sense of being a big brother um, who's old enough to be this kid's father, um, from the sense of being someone who is suddenly, um, you know, dealing with this chronic illness. And, 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 I, and, I'm, and I'm just reflecting on all of it, right? And, and also reflecting on the idea, and in that reflection, I suppose, I don't want to be a product of a broken country, right? Like a broken country makes a broken man, makes a broken person, and I don't want to be broken. I'm bigger and more than what this country has kind of left me with. Frederick Joseph is my guest here on the Friday Book Show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. His new book is titled Patriarchy Blues, Reflections on Manhood. I want to talk to you. We alluded to this a bit earlier, but I I want to come back to this. I want to talk to you about the messaging about sexual aggression and sexual violence for young men. As I read your book, I thought about something that Peggy Ornstein wrote about in her book, Boys and Sex. I, I don't know if you're familiar with her. Yes, I am. She talks about how early young boys are conditioned to think that sexual relationships should be should involve aggression, you know, dominance or some kind of coercion. And I pulled a couple of sentences out of this. I'm I'm interested in your thoughts. She says, in locker rooms, fraternity houses, and other all-male spaces, they hear that sex is about conquest, about asserting masculinity through domination of girls' bodies. First, Frederick, do you think that's true? And then I'm interested in how the men in your life talked to you and maybe still talk to you about what it means to be intimate with someone. Yeah, I think that that's 100% true, right? <laughs> and, 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 and you know it's true when, you know, the leader of, you know, the nation or the former leader of the nation 
um, is talking about locker room talk, quote unquote, and things of that nature. It's an absolute real thing. It's a, it's one of the most toxic aspects of our society, right? And, and, and I actually write about, I, I use two different instances to talk about that. Well, I actually use a few actually throughout the book, but two that I come, that come to mind right now, I was actually sitting on a plane when I was working on the edits for Patriarchy Blues and I was watching the movie, uh, The Sandlot. It's a movie from the nineties. I'm not sure if you've seen it. No, I haven't. Um, Okay. Yeah. I write about that in the book. It's, it's, it's about these young boys playing baseball and, you know, one of those like coming of age, you know, filled of dreams kind of things. And, um, one of the, one of the young boys, he has a crush on this young woman who is a lifeguard at a local pool. And so what he does is he, he and they're very young. They're maybe like 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, he jumps in the pool and like, he can't swim. So he essentially like drowns himself knowing this lifeguard will jump in to get him. And she has to give him mouth to mouth to resuscitate him. And he, um, as she's doing it, he comes to, when he comes to, he looks at his friend who's nearby. They're all worried about him. And he winks. And then he holds her head down to like kiss him. Mm-hmm. Right. She gets frustrated. She kicks them out the pool. It's maybe like seven of the, the, these kids. Kicks them out the pool. And when she kicks them out, he look, as they're leaving, he looks back at her um, like with these sad puppy eyes or whatever. And she gives him a little smile like as if boys will be boys, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I had wrote this, this, this essay, and, and I can't remember what essay I include that in, but I went back and added that because I was like, you know, I've watched this movie. And I saw the movie for the first time when I was about five years old. I've watched this movie at least 30 times in my life. <laughs> and never once did I or anyone around me, whether it was a teacher, a, uh, you know, I watched it primarily in school. So whether it was a teacher, a camp counselor, a, a classmate who was a young woman, no one has ever brought this scene up. Ever. <laughs> never. You know, and, and it just shows how normalized you know, quite frankly, it is this culture of coercion dominance, really a rape culture is. So do, so I, I think your answer to this is you do agree that in all male spaces, young boys and young men get this message that coercion and dominance is really the way to, to enter into some kind of an intimate relationship. Did the men in your circle. And, and and actually, I should also ask about your mother, since she was raising you by herself, ever talk to you about what, you know, a healthy, intimate relationship looks like when you're in your teens, you know, when you're just beginning those kinds of relationships. Yeah. And, and I don't think that that exists in all male circles or all circles of men, right? So mm-hmm. I will say that I think that it exists in pre- and predominantly exists in, in men's circles, but I don't think all. Um, to that point, you know, growing up, my mother had a ton of conversations with me um, about rape culture, right? Like there are many oh. things, yeah, like a ton. And I, and, I, and, and, and I think that there are many things that we didn't talk about, but that was certainly one of them. Like I grew up in a neighborhood where, you know, guys would catcall women and things like that. And my mother had me very young. My mother had me at 18 years old. So, you know, my mother's a beautiful woman and people would harass her mm-hmm. constantly. And and because of that, she taught me, she instilled in me not to be that person, right? Like she, she definitely instilled in me just to be something better, something more. And so for the most part, I surrounded myself with 
young men who are at least that, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it does. One of the one of the things you write about is how open homophobia and transphobia is. And I I, I thought of the legislation that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently signed where public school teachers are mandated not to give classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity. And one of the things that the governor says is inappropriate is to teach kindergarten children, quote, they can be whatever they want to be. He does not want teachers talking about that in the classroom when it comes to sexuality. So now more than a dozen states are lining up to to replicate this legislation. I'm sure you have thoughts on this, given how expressively you've written about these phobias. What do you think when you see this kind of legislation being picked up in other parts of the country? What, what does it mean? Yeah, I mean, quite frankly, it's, it's, it's utterly fascist. <laughs> like, there's not really another word for what it is. And it, and it also conflates what sexuality and identity are, right? Like a kid knows who and what they are very young, right? Like I read plenty of books that were um, about, you know, different relationships. I read, you know, like I said, S.E. Hinton or, mm-hmm. or um, uh, Tale of Two Cities, whatever. All these books had romance in it. Jane Austen, right? I'm pretty sure that all those books, if we're talking about sexuality, those books didn't make the the kids in in the school who were queer want to be want to be heterosexual right like <laughs> so i don't think that reading books that include um you know couples that are same sex and and people who are identifying um as you know in the various ways that they do is not going to make those kids change right so this is this is just um a way of of placing you know a, a fascist principle and 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 set of of laws and boundaries on people um to quite frankly try to build a homogenous society in my personal opinion i mean they you're touching on something that i guess i ask myself when i see this kind of lawmaking which is what exactly what is it that they're afraid of i mean is it about you know, this perception that you're protecting children from something they're not prepared for? Is it something that you've alluded to, which is if you talk about it, kids will want to be it, and then what? Society collapses? I mean, how how would you answer that? What what do you these seem like fear based responses. What do you think they're afraid of? I, I think that they're afraid of losing power. Right. You know, people like Ron DeSantis, people like Donald Trump, you know, all these different people have built their power on this idea of homogeneity, whiteness, you know, toxic Christianity. So what happens if you start dialing that back? You don't you're not you've built your power on nothing but hatred and dominance. So that means ultimately losing power. And I think that that's the real thing here. This is not a this is not a this is not just a culture play. It's a culture play for power. Mm -hmm. I I wanted to ask you about your, since we're talking about kids, uh, I I wanted to ask you about your book, The Black Friend. It was a, it was written for young adult readers. Is that right? Yes. Okay. Will you talk about the experience 
on, I think it was the New York subway, the New York City subway that gave you the idea for the book. Do I have that right? It was an experience on the subway? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was a a culmination of experiences from the subway to the um, elevator that morning. Uh, Make a long story short, you know, and I tell the story all the time. It's it's, it's not funny, but it's just- (laughs) You're laughing and I wondered if there is something amusing about (laughs) it. Yeah, you know, it's just just the the irony irony of it all is, and I'll get to the the ironic part of it. Okay. uh, make a long story short. You know, you know those those mornings that you have that are like just going really well, where you're just like, oh, this is a, this is gonna be a really big yes, day. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I was having one of those mornings. You know, perfect coffee, perfect playlist. You know, <laughs> things like that. And um, what ultimately what ultimately happened was I get on the elevator, and and I've been living in that building at the time. It was a, you know one of those like kind of luxury high rise buildings. I've been living there for about a year and a half. Um, this this woman, this white woman on the elevator, as I'm getting on in my suit and whatnot, whatever, she like clutches her purse because it's just her and I in the elevator, right? So I'm just like, oh god, whatever. So I just I'm like, you know what? Good day, good day, good day. Try to ignore it. I'm used to microaggressions as much as I shouldn't be. So like whatever. So I get to the train, and when I get to the train subway, um, there are seats available on the subway, which is like wild for rush hour, right? So <laughs> I'm just like, oh my god, you know, my day's back. Okay, we're in better space. <laughs> uh-huh. So 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 I I sit next to this young white woman, and I'm I'm drinking my like overly expensive coffee and listening to Marvin Gaye, I believe it was that morning. And this this woman, when I sit next to her, young white woman, she has this purse it's like a huge purse i don't know if you know what like a long champ purse is like one of those big <laughs> like yeah it's like it's just like more of a satchel go. less of a purse yeah yeah. Okay. yeah you can put like a you can put a laptop <laughs> and a kid in it basically you know yeah. um, she she basically has one of those and when i sit next to her i like turn my head just to like just look at my surroundings when i look at her she clutches that satchel thing like i mean like she like grasps it like hugs it right um and pulls it to her person and i'm just like come on so when she so when she does that i I give her this look like you can't be serious so then like she acts like she's afraid and she like gets up and moves to another part of the subway right so you know like most millennials at that point i tweet out about the experience and when i tweet out about the experience people are just like hey well you should write about that because a lot of people didn't understand what was wrong with her actions right so what? i found myself explaining Wait, what yeah 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 and like mind you these are my followers like people who like followed me at the time <laughs> and whatnot they're just like i don't get what she did wrong and i'm just like so i'm, I'm like explaining it in my comments and like responding people are like oh would you write about this i'm like sure right like <laughs> um so that's how the book came to be but the ironic part is <laughs> i got a message two years later like during the pandemic after the book came out from that young woman who was on the subway wow. who's like i got your book and i i read how like i read an article about how you got to writing it i think that was me and i want to apologize oh, to you. oh wow yeah 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 wild really really wild how did you um, respond so, you know I, I, you know, I'm a very transparent person. I told her it was extremely harmful, but, um, you know, I hope that she learned and it led to a New York Times bestselling book. So, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not like, oh, I'm the, the good trauma. There's no such thing as good trauma, but I'm, <laughs> right. but I'm, but I'm, I'm happy that something positive was able to evolve and, and mutate out of that trauma. 
Uh, I, I was hoping you would read the first essay, which from the book, again, Patriarchy, Blues, Reflections on Manhood. Um, this essay is called Mercy, Mercy, Me. Will you do that? Absolutely. To all of those in process of evolving into someone freer. For a long time, I thought joy was something I didn't deserve because my cup always seemed to run it over with pain. So much so that it spilled out into a river of harm that I've inflicted on others. But I met Joy for the first time a few years ago, as I stood on the edge of that river, ready to jump in and be swept away. As I readied myself to jump, suddenly the sun's warmth seemed to drape over and calm me, like a parent's embrace and kiss on the forehead to calm a child. Then the wind whispered in my ears as it pushed me away from that river. You are more than the trauma you have endured, and you can be more than the trauma you have caused. I began to cry as I had never cried before. And on that river, I was reborn with the understanding that healing and accountability gives us the opportunity to no longer be bound to our past selves. I am not my past selves. That day, I believe I was given an assignment, not to simply write a book, but rather to create a space, somewhere we can leave the pieces of ourselves that don't serve joy, somewhere we can be accountable for who we have been with the oppressive systems that have gaslighted us into being less than who we truly are, somewhere we can grow and help others feel safe. The words on these pages sing the song of goodbye to the men I have been and welcome with open arms the man I am becoming. But there is room here for you as well. There is room for us all. My love grows daily for the man I am trying to be. The journey to become him is difficult, and I know it will take the rest of my life. As will the work of unpacking how patriarchy, white supremacy, and capitalism have consorted to destroy all we hold dear. This book is not a map for the journey but rather perspective on which direction to go and someone to walk with along the way. I hope that my experiences, my pain, my growth serve as reminders that we are not bound to the gravity of the pain. We are not bound to misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, or any manifestation of, of, of what has kept us from our ultimate joy of freedom. May in this space we find strength, understanding, progress, and joy. May in this space we find the courage to heal and grow. May in this space we find the warmth of the sun and the honesty of the wind. With love, Fred. Frederick Joseph reading from his new book, Patriarchy Blues. Well, I couldn't resist ending the conversation here with, I think, a musician that you admire a lot. Okay? (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Let's listen for a few minutes. Fred, I've really appreciated the conversation. Thanks so much for your for your candor and your time. Thank you for having me. Underground and in the sky, animals and birds who live.